This is a Glass Box Media Podcast. The episodes in this feed were originally published on Crawlspace. Please use caution while listening and follow Crawlspace Podcast for more. Welcome to Crawl Space. I'm Tim here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today? I'm doing fantastic today, Tim. This episode coming up is one of the more fascinating conversations that you and I have had kind of one-on-one about a topic that's super interesting to us because you get to look into the psychological spectrum that somebody like this could be on or was on at the time of his crimes. But I'm on a spectrum of wondering how you're doing today, Tim. So before we get to this, where's your needle at? (laughs) Wow. Yeah, that was was a reach. (laughs) It's bouncing in the red, Lance. I'm excited here today. Yeah, very excited to speak about this real sadistic son of a gun. His name is Edward Wayne Edwards. He is a serial killer, was a serial killer. He was born in 1933. He's American. And we're going to go through his timeline and some of the murders that he confessed to. Right. And not only the murders that he confessed to, but how he manipulated the media and the public and his own image. So really fascinating conversation here between two really fascinating guys. Who were just nominated for a Clue Award from CrimeCon. We'll see you down there in Orlando in a couple of weeks in September 2023. Thanks a lot, CrimeCon. This is an honor just to be recognized in this way. It certainly was. And when you look at all of the other names that are up there and all of the other categories, I mean, it's very humbling to be a part of that. Uh, Again, an honor to be nominated, but I'm going to be so mad if we don't win. I'm going to start flipping (laughs) tables. (laughs) This research about Edward Wayne Edwards was brought to us by Bumika Sharma, so big thanks to Bumika. And some of this information comes from these books that were written about Edward Wayne Edwards. There's one called It's Me, Edward Wayne Edwards, The Serial Killer You Never Heard Of, and that's written by John A. Cameron. And he also kind of wrote an expanded version called It Was Always Me. And then there was a docu-series called It Was Him, The Many Murders of Ed Edwards. So this case, while not very popular, like not, not a real popular serial killer name, it's very interesting and has been covered a lot in the past few years. And you mentioned the books, Tim, and the documentary. There's also the podcast called The Clearing, which approaches the story from April Blasio's point of view. She is the daughter of Edward Wayne Edwards, and that is a podcast from Pineapple Street Media and Gimlet Media. So check that out if you want to go into this story from that perspective. And Tim, if anybody wanted to listen to this episode, plus every other piece of content that we have without the commercials or sponsorship interruptions, where would they go to do so? Well, listeners can now subscribe to Crawlspace Premium on Apple Podcasts. But if you're not an Apple user, you can go to crawlspace.supportingcast.fm and sign up for the same product there. You get early releases, ad-free episodes, our weekly bonus show. And this is all bundled with Missing, which is another one of our podcasts and the new podcast from Crawlspace Media called Dark Valley, and you'll hear all of that ad-free. 
And as long as people are out there and they're giving us a good review and a good rating and doing the same for Missing and for Dark Valley, as long as people are out there doing that, Tim, and they wanted to find us on social media, where would that be? Well, folks can follow us on social media at Crawlspace Podcast or Crawlspace Pod. And before we get to this conversation, we just want to remind our listeners that the nonprofit that Tim and I are on the board of is hosting its first annual 5K Run for the Missing. This is going to be on Sunday, October 8th at 11 a.m. in a little town just north of Boston, Massachusetts. For information on the race, to register, or to just make a donation for the nonprofit, you can go to PIFTM. .org slash run, or you could go to runsignup.com and search Run for the Missing, and the registration fee goes directly to the nonprofit Private Investigations for the Missing. You will also receive a commemorative t-shirt with your registration, and you'll be entered into a raffle and eligible to receive one of the many amazing raffle prizes, and these links will also be in the show notes. Hope to see you there. Thanks a lot for listening, everybody. We're going to break quick for commercial here, and we'll be right back to discuss serial killer Edward Wayne Edwards. And a thank you to our sponsors. Back to the program. Edward Wayne Edwards was born June 14th, 1933. He was born as Charles Edward Myers in Akron, Ohio. And we don't know too much about his early life, but when he was about two and a half years old, he saw his mom, Jillian Myers, commit suicide. She actually did that by shooting herself in the stomach. Really traumatic for a two and a half year old. I don't really know how much one can retain at that age. To see something that traumatic must have left quite an impression on him. And to shoot yourself in the stomach, that is one of the most painful ways to commit suicide. That is not instant. That must have done some serious psychological harm to a young boy, as it would anyone. And apparently the shot alone didn't kill his mom instantly, but she died of septicemia a few days later. I couldn't even imagine that. That's such a horrible way to go. And subsequently, he was adopted by Mary Ethel and Fred Edwards. But by the age of seven, he was sent to an orphanage in Parma, Ohio. And this orphanage apparently had nuns that physically and emotionally abused him regularly. And there's also reports that Edwards was the youngest person in the reformatory, and the other kids used to tie him to a tree, taking their turns kicking him, trying to get him to break his bedwetting and to stop his escalating acts of defiance. And apparently there's a, there was a nun named Sister Agnes Marie who told him she was his new mother, and she apparently abused him emotionally and physically. It makes me wonder if these nuns, especially Sister Agnes Marie, instructed the kids to do this to him, if this was something where it was kind of like a police-your-own type thing. And of course, kids of that age, they're going to do it. They don't understand the ramifications of their actions. But the orphanage couldn't handle him anyway. They asked his grandmother to come and take him, and on the day he was leaving, Sister Agnes Maria asked him, Ed, what are you going to be when you grow up? And he apparently replied, I'm going to be a crook and I'm going to be a good one. That was the only way I would get any recognition. I mean, outside of the context of what this guy grew up to actually do, I'm not trying to make a joke here, but that's a pretty badass thing to tell somebody who's been in charge of this systematic abuse. I am not giving him credit at all, but this is exactly the answer that I think the sister didn't want to hear. Do you think like maybe she thought like this kid learned his lesson or he just had this attitude that he just didn't give an F? But either way, not giving any credit to him at that young age... It's a pretty incredible thing to say, 
to someone who's been systematically abusing you, especially a nun. Yeah, I'm a little confused, to be honest, by that quote, because I think most crooks don't get any recognition. Like, if recognition was what he wanted, I don't think being a crook is the best path to get that. Yeah, it's a really good point, because what is he looking at in reference to crooks who have received recognition for their crimes. The newspapers, while he's in this orphanage, while he's under the rule of these, uh, the you know, the, the Catholic nun and all of these kids, uh, do they get their paper regularly? And, and is the paper featuring, like, Al Capone? Yeah, fair questions. I don't know. So Edwards lived with his grandmother, Annabella Myers, for a few years. But unfortunately, in his grandma's advanced age, she could not take care of him. And he was sent to a reform school in Pennsylvania. So after the reform school in Pennsylvania in 1950, he returns to Akron. And this is where he starts committing burglaries. He left juvenile detention to join the Marines. Uh, He went AWOL from Camp Lejeune in North Carolina, then arrested in Jacksonville, Florida, dishonorably discharged from the Marines, which is quite a blemish on your military record, especially especially for a young man in the 50s. Yeah, absolutely. And it's unclear what crime he committed in Jacksonville, enough to get him arrested, and then it led to him being dishonorably discharged. And in April of 1952, Edwards was sentenced to a federal reformatory in Chillicothe, Ohio, for two years for impersonating a Marine and interstate transportation of a stolen car. So clearly a young man who has really no respect for the law. It feels like he, after being dishonorably discharged from the Marines, the first thing he does is use that as a con. You know, he's got the uniform, he's got the experience, and he could probably get away with enough before anybody looks into whether or not he's a legit Marine. So he's already living up to his promise to Sister Agnes Marie. And in his 20s and 30s, Edwards moved around a lot and did various jobs like working on ships, selling vacuum cleaners, and fixing things as a handyman. And in 1955, he finds himself in an Akron jail being held on burglary charges, but he breaks out. Well, there you have it. A long list of serial killers breaking out of prison. This is now uh, four, I think, off the top of my head. So he goes on this string of armed robberies at gas stations. And he's caught in Montana in 1956 and sentenced to a penitentiary in Deer Lodge. And when he was arrested, he claimed that his name was James Garfield Langley. And he was supposedly living with his new wife's brother, Roger White, in Great Falls. That's a pretty royal name to pick, James Garfield Langley. It sounds like the elite. It was the president, James Garfield. Bingo. I think that's probably why he chose it. So he spends about three years in prison in Montana And he was released in 1959. But during that time, there was a couple, Patty Kalitsky and Dwayne Bogle, who were murdered in Great Falls, Montana in 1956, January of 1956. This is like a Lover's Lane double murder where these two victims were shot execution style. But in... 2021, it was actually reported widely. The Cascade County Sheriff's Office concluded Kenneth Gould, who died in Oregon County in 2007, more likely killed Patty and Dwayne. Makes me wonder how long Edwards remained a suspect in this Lover's Lane style murder. Yeah, isn't that strange? And apparently Whitey Bulger was even a suspect for a period of time. 
And so around this time, Edwards was traced to Colorado where he got in trouble for cashing some checks that had to do with the Portland Bowling Club, of which he was a member. And shortly after that, he was added to the FBI's 10 most wanted fugitives list. And a federal warrant charged him with unlawful interstate flight to avoid confinement after a robbery conviction. My God. Okay, so he's got the robbery conviction and he flees over state lines to avoid the confinement and that lands him along with the suspicion of murder on the FBI's top 10 most wanted fugitive list. Yeah, I think so. And it wasn't until January 20th of 1962 that he was captured in Atlanta with his wife Marlene. So he's captured in Atlanta and sentenced pretty shortly thereafter in the same year, 1962, to 16 years in Leavenworth Federal Penitentiary. And in 1967, he was transferred to Lewisburg Federal Penitentiary in Pennsylvania, where he was paroled from federal prison. He apparently got divorced because then he got married again in 1968 to a woman named Kay Hetterly on July 20th. In a bizarre turn, he publishes an autobiography, The Metamorphosis of a Criminal, colon, The True Life Story of Ed Edwards. And he then appears on two television shows, ironically, To Tell the Truth and What's My Line? So now he's like an advocate for prison reform. Isn't that wild? And he was apparently touring as a speaker on prison reform between 1971 and 1973. But this is when another book kind of comes into play. We mentioned it earlier. It's that book by John A. Cameron. It's me, Edward Wayne Edwards, the serial killer you never heard of. He basically posits that during this time is when Edwards may have been killing more people. This is when the manipulation of the media and his molding of his legacy, I think, is truly starting in his own head. So he's achieved some level of success, probably in a very elevated level in his own head, but some level of success. So now he's almost operating under the, that dual personality. Yeah. It must like give him a rush or something to think that he's fooled so many people, you know, because he's he's not quitting a life of crime. And in fact, he goes on to murder people. In fact, he leaves Wisconsin in September of 1980 after being questioned about the Hack Drew murders in 1982, December 1982. He's added another crime specialty to his resume in the form of arson, and he's incarcerated in Pennsylvania prison. And he was finally released in July of 86. And there's a few other murders that Edwards was suspected of during this time in his life. And in 1960, he was apparently a suspect in Portland, Oregon. He was looked at as a person of interest in the slayings of two teenagers. And Edwards was also suspected of a 1964 double murder of James and Lois Arada. So this happened in Great Falls as well. They were murdered in a grocery store. They were murdered in a grocery store. Yeah, apparently Lois was stabbed 13 times in this store. But Edwards was cleared of any involvement in that double murder because he had an airtight alibi. He was actually incarcerated in Leavenworth at the time. And in Ohio in 1977, William Billy Lavaco was 21 years old from Doylestown, Ohio, and he had been dating Judith Straub, who was 18, from Ohio as well, in Sterling. They'd been dating for eight months, and on August 7th of the same year, 1977, Judith's car was discovered in the parking lot of the Silver Creek Metro Park. Her purse and shoes were found inside the car, and concerns grew. 
as Judith couldn't be located. So family members gathered. Obviously, they were worried. Police initiated a search effort, and they even received some support from a National Guard helicopter. However, their remains were found. And they had both been shot at point-blank range by a 20-gauge shotgun. So Edwards was a suspect in those murders. And then in 1980, in Concord, Wisconsin, Tim Hack and Kelly Drew went missing. This is a case that was known as the Sweetheart Murders. Unfortunately, their bodies were found about two months later in a wooded area about eight miles away. And Drew had been bound at the ankles and wrists and was strangled. There was also a broken hyoid bone in her neck and Hack had a penetrating knife wound to his back. Now, around that time, Edwards had been employed as a handyman at the Concord House, which is a reception hall, and people had seen him and noticed that he had this bloody nose, and he said that it was because of an incident related to deer hunting. I'm not sure if the deer punched him in the nose. Fair question. And he was apparently questioned but released, and he immediately packed his bags and left town with his family. And while on the road, he pointed to a field and apparently told his children, they're going to find a couple of dead kids over there. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsor. And a thank you to our sponsors. Back to the program. So after leaving Wisconsin in September of 1980, the next thing we have here is that Edwards was arrested for arson again, this time in Pennsylvania, in December of 1982. And he spent a few years in prison when he was ultimately released again in 1986. So in a real tragic turn of events in 1996 in Burton, Ohio, Edwards kills his foster son, Danny Boy Edwards. And Danny was living with Edwards and the family for years. And he was a U.S. Army soldier. And Edwards had convinced him while he was in the Army to go AWOL, just like he did. And Edwards then took him to the woods near his Burton, Ohio home, where he shot Danny twice in the face, killing him. And he buried him in a shallow grave, which was later found by a hunter. And he did this all for insurance money, $250,000. And Edwards apparently gave a confession statement. It reads, Danny Boy was someone we, I, had taken. He told me one day, he said, I'm going to put him out on the streets in Chardon if you don't want him. He said, because we don't want him. So we took him in and uh, let him live there. And uh, then it was after I started plotting down the road to kill him for the insurance purposes and everything that we had his name changed to Danny Boy Edwards and that but he was not a foster son he was not an adopted son he was a, someone that we had taken in with Danny I saw an opportunity to I mean I was always a schemer I was always thinking of ways of making money I've always been into crime and uh with Danny, I saw an opportunity here at Long Range. It took about a year to set it up, and that's what I did. I set it up to collect the money and ended up getting $250,000 out of it. And uh, uh, it was arranged, it was premeditated, it was thought out, it was planned, and that's what I did. He won AWA. I sent him the money. He got the money, he got a Greyhound. He went AWOL and went to Columbus, the bus station in Columbus. That's where I went, and that's where I picked him up at, is the bus station in Columbus. He didn't come here. Then I brought him back to the house. 
and he stayed at our house unbeknown to my wife. He was out in the barn, he was in the car that was parked there. He was in the house and uh, it was all set up. I'd already had a, uh, prior to him going into the military, he took out a, a $50,000 insurance policy named us beneficiary. Then the name change was not effective, was not all the way through yet once he went into the military. When he went into the military, he was Danny Glockner. It was while he was in basic training that uh, uh, the name change went through to Danny Boy Edwards. So at that time, he had to go down and change his name on the records to uh, the insurance policy because the insurance policy had been made out to the people that he used to live with that already separated and everything. And matter of fact, one of them was dead. And so he went down and changed his policy over to, and named my wife and I the beneficiaries. And he, uh, he was gonna get a medical discharge uh, from the army because he, he, he couldn't handle it. But it was about three days prior to that, and that's when I talked him into going to AWOL, because he, he, they said he was going to Korea, and he didn't want to go to Korea. So I talked him into going to AWOL, or told him to. He did what I told him. And we went to Columbus. I picked him up in Columbus, brought him back here. And then that was part of the scheme that I put together, and it was, okay, we're going to, I'm re talking to him, as to, we're going to make a phone call that he burglarized the house and stole money and, and different things like that. And so then when he had it memorized and everything, I took him down to Ledoux and dropped him off the telephone. I went back home and he called me. It was being recorded. Hi, Pops. How are you? And we talked and I'm sorry I burglarized the house and things like that. I said, well, I didn't know you were even in here, Danny. And, yeah, and so we went all through that, and uh, that he uh, gave the money to another person. And uh, so then uh, it ended, so I went back and picked him up and uh, brought him back to the house. And it was uh, the next night, I think it was the next night, that uh, he ended up losing his life up behind the cemetery because I told him that there was a fellow in Youngstown that was going to come by, pick him up, and hide him out for a couple months, and then he would be clear. He wouldn't have to worry about anything. He believed all this, and it was up there that he, where he died, and I had the body partially covered and kept it that way. I went back up there about every three or four months to check because I wanted the body found, but not immediately, but I didn't want to bury it either. So it left partially covered. And uh, the one time was about a year later when I went up to check on it, the head had been separated from the body through the animals and everything. And uh, I took it with me and took it across the street and threw it up into the field. And the police and everything, they've been looking for it, but they can't find it. It was nothing but the skull. They've been able to, unable to find it. But uh, uh, there was a hundred that uh, found Danny and uh, 
and the rest of the story everybody knows it, uh, where he was found and, and why, but that was set up. And after he was found, it was, oh, I'm not sure, maybe a year later, maybe not as much as a year, that I collected uh, $250,000 on the, from the, uh, the investigation. But uh, the attorney, I had an attorney representing me, and he got a third of this, so the rest of it we got. And my wife, she was not aware of any of this. I endorsed all the paperwork and forged her name, and and uh, she knew absolutely nothing. She's a very Christian-like woman. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsor. And a thank you to our sponsors. Back to the program. What you just heard is a clip from an interview with Edward Wayne Edwards taken the day after his conviction and death sentence. And this is available on the Geoga County Maple Leaf YouTube page. There's a link in the show notes. And a TV station in Wisconsin in 2009 aired a special about the 30-year-old unsolved murder of Timothy Hack and Kelly Drew, who we mentioned before. Not much was expected from it, but a few days later, a woman from Akron, Ohio, did call the Jefferson County Sheriff's Office. She identifies herself and says, I think you need to talk to my father. Apparently, she's always had suspicion that her father was a murderer. So the detective checks into the tip and became highly interested when he found her father's name on the list of 75 suspects questioned shortly after the murder. So he's on the list of just 75 who had been questioned in the unsolved murders of Timothy Hack and Kelly Drew. What a moment. Yeah. And after police acted on the tip and reached out to his address, they encountered this overweight, sickly-looking Edwards who was on oxygen and bound to a wheelchair. He denied knowledge of the crime or memory of the incident, but when he was asked if he had ever been deer hunting, he apparently responded, Oh, that murder. So he eventually submitted to DNA testing and the results came back with an exact match. And because of his declining health, Edwards was flown from Louisville to Wisconsin, where he enters a plea of not guilty to the charges. And for nearly a year, there are few developments in the case. So Homeland Security worked to send out a bulletin to law enforcement agencies in all the cities mentioned in Edwards's book, Metamorphoses of a Criminal. And in 2010, Edwards changes his plea and confesses to the brutal slayings of the two Wisconsin teens in 1980. He then surprises law enforcement by also confessing to the 1977 unsolved murders of the two teens on Lover's Lane in Ohio. He concluded by providing details of the 1996 execution and beheading of his adopted son, collecting a quarter million in life insurance. And Lance, author John Cameron has some cases that he's looked into that he thinks Edward Wayne Edwards is a good suspect for. And some of them you definitely know. One of them is the Zodiac Killer, and really he's not the only one, uh, John Cameron that is, who is talking about this possibility online. And it is a fascinating theory to kind of roll around in your head because Cameron is quoted as saying he robbed a bank 
tried to escape, got a 15-year sentence, and only served five years. Look at his arrest date, February 9th, 1962, and the parole date, September 20th, 1967. He got 10 years cut off of a 15-year sentence, and he was one of the FBI's most wanted men in 1961. So Edwards is the FBI's most wanted man in 1961, and he gets favorable treatment in 1967, and is released a year before the Zodiac killings he had to have been informing. He had a long history of doing that. Right. Yeah. And I think he's sort of suggesting that Edwards was an FBI informant, um, which is an interesting thought. And a little bit of background here on the Zodiac killings. And this unknown killer killed from 68, 1968 until 1970 in the Bay Area of California. He killed five and four separate attacks in Vallejo, Benencia, Lake Berryessa, and finally in the heart of San Francisco. And he approached lovers on lovers lanes and shot them repeatedly. And at Lake Berryessa, he put on a black executioner's hood with a Zodiac cross and circle and viciously stabbed a young couple laying on a beach. And the surviving boy at Lake Berryessa said that the Zodiac mentioned having been in Deer Lodge prison, having escaped and stolen a car. And it is true that Edward spent three years in Deer Lodge from 1956 to 1959 after fleeing Great Falls, where he had killed a young couple on Lover's Lane. He got caught in Billings for a robbery. He was in a stolen car and had tried to escape from the Yellowstone County Jail. So, I mean, some of those details do line up and the timeline does line up. So I'm not not sold on this. And a victim described the Zodiac Killer physically saying he was barrel chested, five feet, eight to six feet tall, dark hair and heavy set, wearing a dark jacket and dark clothing that seemed sloppy and disheveled. He appeared to be in his 30s and fairly unremarkable. He ducked between some trees and emerged about 20 feet later. He was wearing a black hood that appeared professionally sewn and had the Zodiac's signature cross and circle on the front. And Edward's description when he was in his mid-30s, 35 years old in 1968, 5 foot 8 inches, so that fits the height, 185 pounds, a bit pot-bellied, reddish brown hair, and yes, he was barrel-chested. He matched pretty much every aspect of the Zodiac composite. Edward's M.O. throughout his life was to seek recognition by contacting the press and the police. He had done so in 2010 after his capture. He had used knives, ropes, guns, and fire to kill, and that is also what the Zodiac had claimed. And here's a decoded message sent by the Zodiac Killer. Quote, I like killing people because it is so much fun. It is more fun than killing wild game in the forest because man is the most dangerous animal of all. To kill something gives me the most thrilling experience. It is even better than getting your rocks off with a girl. The best part of it is when I die, I will be reborn in paradise, and all I have killed will become my slaves. I will not give you my name because you will try to slow down or stop my collecting of slaves for my afterlife. Now that is a pretty famous decoded message from the Zodiac Killer. The less famous quote from Edward's book reads, he believed that anyone he killed would be his slave in the next life. It was a hidden code, kind of a puzzle about himself. His family also shared that he loved games. And you could see from his own book, Metamorphosis of a Criminal, that he was kind of playing some games. 
with just the information there. So some of that, I, I would say, does match up. I also have to say that we heard that about Samuel Little, too, who was collecting, you know, souls for the afterlife with every victim he killed. So maybe this isn't exclusive to one killer anyway. True. And I feel like a lot of people, when trying to identify the Zodiac killer, will come up with their favorite suspect first and then piece everything together so that it fits the already decoded message from the Zodiac killer, like the, the Unabomber theory or, or something to that effect. With that said, it's very compelling. Um, I would love to speak with this former homicide detective, John Cameron. We're going to reach out to him to see if we can get an interview with him. But at times, he's believed that Edwards was responsible for some other crimes as well. And I'm just going to list off a few of them here because it is kind of shocking. John Bonet Ramsey, Lacey Peterson, the Black Dahlia, Jimmy Hoffa, Chandra Levy, Martha Moxley, Adam Walsh, Teresa Halbach, the West Memphis Three. So yeah, it's it's intense in that there's a lot of these theories that when you look at every one of them individually, you're like, uh, okay, I could see maybe like we just did with the Zodiac one. But it's definitely hard to believe that Edwards was responsible for all of those. Well, it's kind of impossible to believe that he'd be responsible for the Black Dahlia. Yeah, I, I believe Edwards was only 13 at the time in uh, 1947. So yeah, I, I agree with you there. And Halbach is chronologically the last victim on the list, died in Wisconsin in 2005, and Edwards was 72 at that time. So while not impossible, maybe physically unlikely on that end of his life too. I mean, Adam Walsh as well. It just feels like to me, and I'm not trying to make light of this, but it feels like to me it's just a collection of and john benet it's just a collection of very famous murders that are yet unsolved yeah well i, I hope we get the chance to talk with uh john cameron about these because uh, i do think he's got some compelling facts for suspecting edwards for all of these now we've quoted from his book a few times metamorphosis of a criminal but we wanted to just read a few more that really showcase what his personality was and whether or not this is factual because if so He's trying to project that he did, in fact, live up to what he had promised to Sister Agnes Marie when he said he was going to be a crook and he was going to be a good one. So he has this quote. The first one that we want to read is about hitting women. And he writes, I slapped her, knocked her down, kicked her, picked her back up and knocked her down again. I fattened her lip, bruised her up and cussed her out violently. I called her a whore, a slut a little son of a bitch, and threatened to cut her tits off and flush them down the toilet. End quote. And he wrote about self-harm tendencies after being caught in Montana in 1956. He wrote, I did not want to do away with myself, but I did intend to do my best to escape. Slashing my wrists had been a hopeful act. About a week later, I went to court with a court-appointed attorney. The judge asked, Do you have anything to say before I pronounce sentence? Yes, sir, I would like to ask for leniency. I realize the mistakes I've made, and I've come clean with everything. I have a wife and a child on the way. I'd like an opportunity to go back and start a new life. Yeah, so I guess this is him saying, look, I used to be a bad guy, and I am good now. I've got a kid on the way. I'm asking for leniency. And I guess his fictional narrative is that he was granted leniency and... I guess, turned his life around from the way he used to talk to women and the crimes he used to commit. But 
actually we know that wasn't true at all. Yeah, and he used suicide and self-harm as, again, another con. He didn't actually want to do away with himself. He didn't actually want to kill himself. He wanted it to make it look like he was suicidal so that he could get leniency because he realized the mistakes of his way. Yeah, no, con man, that's, that's the right description. Con man and murderer, Edward Wayne Edwards. An arsonist. And family man. And Edwards passed away from natural causes at the Corrections Medical Center in Columbus, Ohio on April 7th, 2011. And this spared him from the scheduled lethal injection execution, which was set for August 31st of the same year.